Welcome to the Ivy Podcast. We're just two aunties sharing our experience through the lens of one Blackfoot woman and one Anishinaabe woman. And we are Indigenous Vision, an educational nonprofit based in Montana and Arizona. We are 100% Indigenous led, and this is our podcast. Check us out at indigenousvision.org to learn more about our work, make a donation, or play back any of our radio shows and this episode. Hello and welcome to the Indigenous Vision Podcast. We are on episode 82 as we approach, wow, February 2023, Suta. How does that feel for you? Amazing. It's um, time's flying by really fast. This year is a huge year. I turn 40 and Indigenous Vision turns eight. Wow. I know. I know. So eight years ago, I started on this journey to work my dream and it's scooting along I'm not like a millionaire but I'm not broke but and I'm doing what I love so it's beautiful isn't that so important it is it is I don't think anybody should be unhappy at work I mean that's why I do cultural humility and organizational development and change management is because it's like your bedroom right your bedroom and the place you work should be some of the most comfortable places in your life because you spend most of your time there And if we're spending most of our time in these places, the air should be clean. There should be no tension. It should be healthy, non-toxic environments. You know, it's where we spend most of our time. I think our environment always makes a difference. And I think when you're in toxic environments, whether that's like emotional or like a character of a person or a personality of an organization, because each organization has its own character and personality, it could be toxic. Yeah, it could generate health or it could generate illness. And and I think it's important that we constantly frame it with culture humility, constantly reevaluating and reflecting on on your on your usefulness or your uh, purpose and impact, I suppose. Purposeful work. Mm-hmm. That's really what my life shifted into as well. Thanks to you and all of your amazing work, I was contemplating because I'm approaching my eighth year of, of living in the U.S. So I'm also celebrating an anniversary coming up in a week. And it was uh, I get really reflective around this time of the year because I always think, oh, my gosh, I gave it all up. I was a radio DJ back in Canada and I had this quote unquote dream job and my dream position that I worked so hard for and I made an impact on the community that I lived in. And then I just gave it all up and went for an even bigger, crazier dream that I didn't know anything about. I just took a big jump and leap of faith and moved to a city I'd never been to with people I didn't really know and just made a really extreme shift in my life. So I get really reflective that I've been here eight years. I'm really surprised for one that I'm still going Two, I'm just amazed on how well it's worked out. And I was reflecting again on my radio career because I'm now 41 and I'm still processing a lot of the trauma that I have encountered from growing up in a city like Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada, because my whole life, I just thought life was just like that. Like it was a violent state constantly. And now that I'm here and I don't experience that because I've purposefully followed this path into working for myself, doing all the things that I want, making my home this wonderful place, surrounding myself with wonderful people and ideas and things that I do. I just 
I'm just always flabbergasted by how much abuse and how much just uh, white supremacist behaviors that I accepted as normal and status quo for so long. So I've had to like unlearn so much. I've had to process traumas that creep up at the most untimely places when I'm doing stuff in my life. So I reflected on my radio career and how I'm grateful I never got a job at one of the big quote unquote white stations or the mainstream stations in my city, because that's deep down what I'd always yearned for, right? Was to get onto the big rock station. And because I was so passionate about rock and roll and like lived the lifestyle. But then I I just couldn't get my foot in the door. I just stayed with the company that I worked for, found ways around it and just accepted that I would never be good enough is the word or accepted enough to be on a mainstream radio station in Canada, specifically in Winnipeg, which has a lot of racial problems. So that I'm now realizing that I'm out of it. Right. And I'm just grateful I never got that job because it would have impacted my current situation. I probably would not have never have left. I probably would never have gone so deep into my own personal experiences and healed this much. And I've just been really reflecting on that. So I I kind of still have to look back sometimes to appreciate what I have now. And as we approach February 2023, I don't think I've ever been this well before, which is insane, right? I mean, to, to me, that's insane for 41 years old. It is. It is. It, especially with culture humility, what I'm learning is some people have never experienced discrimination. And um, so it's it's not supposed to be common to live a life where discrimination in a store or at a business happens on an everyday occurrence. That's the... <laughs> That's the kind of surprising side to this culture humility journey, right, is that in every class we we do get some emotional people that say, wow, I have never heard people's experiences in this way, and I did not realize that this was happening like this. What that makes me think is, is <laughs> a disclaimer, we're going to get into some hard topics here, um, is the uh, the Black female police officer saying that she had never seen anything this atrocious or horrible happen uh, to, what's the gentleman's name? Tyree Nichols. We should say his name because it has happened before. I mean, that's what Rodney King was, right? The brutal beating of a Black man that had been filmed for the first time. Emmett Till. And captured by media. And so, yeah, we have seen atrocities and inhumanities like this before. And I had heard before I went to the basketball game on Saturday that there was a white officer involved, but at that point they had not put his face or arrested him or relieved him from duty at that time. And I just kind of, I didn't look into it too much at that point. I thought that was really interesting in the way, um, this is maybe a good example about how media portrays and frames and helps script our community's narrative about what's happening in these instances about gun violence and about violence in general and police violence. It's just violence across the board. Should we really pick out one violence that's happening or should we just get really serious about looking at violence in all ways? Because this is a, uh, 
don't mean to turn this podcast very serious, but it's just, it's just really unfortunate that um, things like this are still happening. Yeah. We're fresh off a cultural humility training where we were talking about the ground that we stand on, which is part of our training and how this repeated problem, Mm -hmm. it's hard to describe. It's a repeated problem that we're addressing. People seem to get renewed activation and trying to do something, but it almost seems like it's getting worse. And I don't know if I'm going crazy or if I'm spending too much time reading into it, but it just seems like it's getting worse. And I've had to really contemplate just how deep the white supremacist values go and how sometimes I, for one, could get caught up in it, whitewash yourself a little bit to try and fit in, whatever you got to do. And then boom, suddenly you're also causing harm. Yeah. That's so important. I never, because I have, I'm guilty too of, of whitewashing. I always think back to this um, one meeting that I was in and it was with the Arizona Water Resource. I can't remember if it was the council or uh, it was a group of older white men getting together about Arizona's water resources. I'm a water resource specialist trained on how to do all of those watershed formulas, you know, I can sample and test how fast water runs through any substrate to refill a a basin, quantifying your water, essentially. And then I also look into quality mining contamination and and how to clean that up as well. And so (laughs) I found myself in this room of of older white males. And I was sitting in the front row because I usually go alone to these events. And so I like to make it more intimate, you know, with a show or with anything. Sometimes I like to hang out by the back wall, but if it's like a speaker or a musician, I'll get up front so that I can get just me and the musician in, right? And then the crowd kind of goes to the side. Do you know what I'm talking about with music right there? Yeah, <laughs> maximum connection. <laughs> yes, that's that's what I go for. Anyhow, I was sitting in the front row and I was just prepared to soak in all of this amazing water knowledge about managing water in a desert, right? That's got to be some amazing knowledge. And the old guy opens it with, all right, so how do we get the water out of native hands? Something along those lines. And I'm like, goodness, I like, yeah, I'm like, OMG. And I immediately stood up and there was a couple guys who looked at me, who watched me walk in. We exchanged glances and good mornings. And, and I did realize like, I'm outnumbered in this, this room. I'm the only female and I'm the only female of color. And as soon as he said that I stood up almost out of like an instant reaction, like a surprise. And I immediately said, I think I'm, I think I'm in the wrong room. I think I stammered. And I'm like, dang, I got to go out. <laughs> I'm just, this is not my room. Yeah, I went and I, luckily at that time, my friend Deb, Debbie Nez, she's an awesome lady down in Phoenix. She called me right at that second and said, what are you doing? Do you want to meet for lunch? And I was like, yes. And we went to a restaurant and we saw Shaq. <laughs> so it immediately took my mind off of of all of that stuff you know all of the injustices and how we see things and how things are scripted and 
and how people talk to each other when they're comfortable and they don't think that there's a threat or anything that they should be defensive from each other in the room. I don't know if that guy saw me. Maybe I was too quiet. That is an insane example of just how blatant and brazen white people in power can be when it comes to language and vocabulary like that. And just mm-hmm. the notion that they want to own the water. Well, yeah. And and yeah, and that's the whole another podcast is ownership of natural resources. I want to I want to be clear because people need over explanation. I found I found that you can spend 15 weeks a whole semester with people and they'll still think reverse racism is is a thing. I don't know if I put enough time into that one, but <laughs> I want to be clear that it's not white people I have a problem with it, as an organization or or a white woman or a Karen or the white men in that, that AZ Water Resources room. It's a system that was put in place by your grandparents, your, your forefathers, the one that wrote the constitution that says that me and my people are merciless Indian savages. Those people who implemented this system and this structure that we're living in right now that we've inherited that we implement as workers in our everyday policies and actions at work so whether you're working for the federal government or whether you're working for the state or whether you're working for an NGO and you're implementing programs how you implement those programs on a day-to-day basis and those decisions you make matter and how you interact in the relations you make with the people that you're providing those services for, it really does matter. And um, so it's not like BIPOC people against white people or black cops against white cops. It's it's this idea that uh, it's the good baby, bad baby. It's the systemic policies in place that make us perceive brown skin and black skin as problem makers and troublemakers. I think the whole world is like, I mean, the whole white supremacy world is like kind of jumping for joy these last two mass shootings and this public violence because they really enthusiastic to, to make the whole news story around the shooter is Asian. And then now they're leaving out the solo white guy and focusing on it's it's the black guys too well isn't the overall problem is that police are killing people in blackfoot society we do have soldiers and like camp protectors and they do i don't know i've always thought that they lie on the exterior of our territory and kind of keep those eyes out to make sure war parties and and coup parties are not creeping up on you, right? And keeping you safe. And then there's people within our communities who patrolled and kept order. And so these people who keep order are like a natural part of any societal structure. But I I think you overstep bounds when the that mechanism and what they enforce starts harming people and they justify it that it was our fault as the people. I'm not sure. Um, You know, I try to uh, protect myself a little bit and even purposefully trying to uh, soften the blow of trauma and secondary trauma. Still see a lot of of it on your timeline and uh, you still see it every or hear it every time you turn on, on the news or the radio. 
Yeah, I think it's important the way we talk about this and the way we frame it so that it doesn't create more animosity between people trying to other each other and realizing that we have a bigger problem because I'm pretty sure we all want to live in communities where our kids can play no matter what color they are in the streets, right? Without, that's, that's also a privilege issue too. I was like, man, I wish our kids can play in the streets without alcohol and drug violence. But then there is places in, in America where that's possible in the, in the neighborhoods. We just need um, liberation from this system that's making us other each other and making us hurt each other and making us want to join our own gangs of, and it's not even about right actions and wrong actions anymore. And overall, what is a good way to live when we start? Uh, I think it's important that we talk about this white man being there, but I also think it's important that we don't lose sight of systemic system um, right. that's allowing this to happen because that conversation can get, go down the rabbit hole, right? Oh yeah. White supremacy. Yeah. I'm just wrapping up a, another book on it. And again, it's just, I'm contemplating everything through that lens of who's upholding it subconsciously, unconsciously, and choosing not to uphold it, right? Mm -hmm. And I think those decisions have to be made on the individual level. So when I'm now moving through the world, I have to question, is what I'm about to do upholding this system or is it dismantling it? And I think that's something that's really helped me. And I'm passionate about pointing it out because I, maybe someone will be like, yeah, oh my goodness. I can't believe I was upholding this system this whole time. Thanks for pointing that out. I'm going to try and do better. Mm -hmm. So when I'm seeing all this, I'm just, I'm just seeing people completely stuck in it. Yeah. Like rats running in a wheel. Yeah like completely stuck and drowning in it. And it is so violent and bloody. Mm -hmm. Unnecessarily. Mm -hmm. I don't think that, I don't think that the world needs to be like this at this time, but we, it is what we allow it to be. It really is. There are so many people who don't see a problem with the way things are. And that really bugs me. Like that's whoa to me because of the position that I grew up in. Well, that's natural. In in my training in change management, we're taught that only, I think it's something insanely small, like only 10 to 12% of people are, are leaders and will sway influence. And so the rest of the people just follow orders. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I am not one of those people. Um, yeah. I tried to be to like fit in and whitewash myself and be a, a model citizen despite where I came from. And it backfired. And it was so detrimental to my health. I almost didn't pull through in some of my darkest days. And I'm like, never doing that again. I've always had a little rebel streak. I was just talking with a friend about the well, not the first time, like I've been crossing the border since I was born, back and forth, back and forth. Uh, the child of two enrolled parents on each side, one in Montana, one in Alberta. And one time when I was 17, it was like a year after I got my 
first car. Well, it was my second car. My first car, I had to give up and give it to my older sister because she got pregnant. I was so bummed because it was a little tiny blue beetle. I loved it. And then my grandpa got me a little Honda Prelude and he taught me business on how to do it too. He sold sculptures. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to get it and he took me to see the sale happen and all of that let me know where my car was coming from but so I was at the border I had just had this car maybe nine 12 months barely a year and um, I was in my grade 12 year and I only needed one year in school or one class in grade 12 so I spent the whole year transferring around to different schools, visiting family and taking that one class because they wouldn't let me go half days. But I um, was crossing the border one of these times and the border guard had a problem with my country of residency. And to me, I, I really wanted to be, well, I am Blackfoot first. Uh, and it's because because I have this over overemphasized sense of Blackfootness because my dad's blood tribe enrolled and my mom's Blackfeet tribe enrolled. And that makes me all Blackfeet. (laughs) And I'm not mixed with another tribe. Um, I'm just Blackfoot, right? In my traditional territory of of more than about 15,000 years or so, a bit longer, we've got a 40,000, 23,000 year old ancient puka in our territory, but these border guards tried to intimidate me. And I remember being in a a really bare room and there were great big, thick international law regulatory books on the shelf in the wall. And one of them grabbed those big, heavy books and slammed them on the table. And for four hours, they told me to pick a country. And I told him, I don't have to pick a country. I'm Blackfoot. I don't have to. I'm Blackfoot. And finally, they found the copy of the J Treaty. I don't know if they were just tired of holding me, but at about the three and a half, four hour mark, they finally let me go. They shouldn't be. Is that policing? Like, is this 17 year old girl really your problem? Is this young Black guy on a skateboard really a problem? Don't mean to compare those two, but like, they're both like, we are both pretty harmless individuals, right? But somehow for men of, of a badge, they decide that it takes four people to, to address one person. And that seems unfair. And, and in that case, they, were, they had four men that they televised in the beginning. It was actually five of them, right? It is a lot to process. It is. It is. And it just brings up so much for me, like, and my encounters uh, with officers and law enforcement people and, and just how, you know, me as an average citizen going to the grocery store, I can identify dangerous individuals. Like I can see a man in the grocery store jerking his wife around by the arm. I can see a drug addict who looks like he's at the edge of his addiction and about to do something dangerous with how shifty he is and my situational awareness of him constantly checking that weapon in his pocket. Yeah. I can see dangerous people out there in our community and that kid on the skateboard and me, a 17 year old girl driving across the border um, between her two nations. I don't know how 
that's seen as dangerous unless we're going on the good baby, bad baby study where they determine that from the age of four, people are identifying darker skin colors with criminality. I don't know if that's a word, but that's the only thing I can can relate it to. Same. It really is. The darker you are, the harder it's probably going to be for you in certain situations, unfortunately. Right. In the beauty industry, we go for that porcelain skin, right? Uh, it's hard for Hollywood actresses to get jobs looking as native as or Hispanic as we do. Hmm. Yeah. It's been a really heavy like weekend. I mean, we came off this training that was amazing. And oh my so goodness, we, it was amazing. It was people getting inspired and committing to change. And now here we are um, again, assessing and being traumatized, <laughs> being actually traumatized as a collective with police brutality, white supremacy, racism, othering, mm-hmm. pointing fingers, pointing fingers. So what do we do with it? And this this is like the question, right? Like, what do we do with it? On an individual level, all I can do is use my voice to try and make a better impact. And for me, that has been vocalizing my own experiences, navigating white supremacy, and doing my best to not uphold it or associate with those who uphold it. That's what I can do. I don't know what else I can do. No, that's all you can do. It's not your job, Melissa, to tell people that they're racist. It's not your job to do the work for people. It's not our job either. You know, that's too much weight on our shoulders to to have to do that for people because we're only at the steering wheel of our own journey. I think that's the only way that it can be done. I mean, if you go to change management uh, studies, there's no change in any business or organization or institute that doesn't happen on an individual basis. It takes time and it happens one person at a time. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's important for all of us, if we're good people, we, we, we can't be quiet about it. Good people don't be quiet. Yeah, nice racism. Nice, being nice and not saying anything just gets more people killed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's important to speak up and use use our voice wherever we can. And, and this is not to the detriment of yourself. I definitely, if you're a person of color and you've been in your umpteenth uh, microaggression for that day or week, you know, take a breather and recognize that you've been through a lot. There is times for other people to step up, you know, and yeah. step back. And it doesn't, we don't have to do all of the work 100% of the time. That's not what community is about. And that I sometimes let that guilt get on me too, because I define myself more as a researcher and a scientist and a water person, you know, a cultural water person. But I get, I get tagged with the activism label a lot. And it's because, well, <laughs> well I wish people would listen to me when I talk about the price tag to clean up, like the economic impact of of dirtying our environment, but our environments are so important to our general health, emotional, physical, everything. And that, that is our social environments too. 
And so I think, you know, if the U.S. ever wants to raise our spot on happiest countries in the world, we're going to address this. If the U.S. ever wants to raise our spot on health disparities in the world, I think we're going to address this. If we ever want to raise our spot on the world tally of the age that we die, our age range is like something silly, like upper 60s, low 70s. The mortality rate? The mortality rate. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> yes. My parents, my mother is using language because she's my, both my parents are the same age. They're both going to be 65 this year. And they're talking like life is almost over because of everyone else who has passed away so young. And yeah. I'm like, wow, there are people in their nineties who are still doing stuff. I mean, that's a 30 more years, mm -hmm. but the internalized oppression of the mortality rate of indigenous people and you know, the sad thing is your mom works in the health field. She knows the stats. She knows that Native people are dying in our 50s and that old age is upper 60s, mid 60s. And that is ridiculous. That is yeah. insane. We shouldn't have 30 and 40 year olds with chronic diseases. Um, we shouldn't have diabetes happening to our teenagers. Everything everything needs a little rehaul. And I know people are scared of change, but if, if we think about the benefit and we talk about the change very openly, then that addresses all of the fears that come with it. Like Cheetos freaking out about how they're going to lose all their business because they're causing stomach cancer, allegedly causing stomach cancer with all the flaming Cheetos. <laughs> Whoa. And, and nobody's stopping them. But they do make a healthy version, don't they? And, and we can make that one more widely available. And we could make that one the majority choice. And in, we could flip the whole thing. We can make the healthy choices the majority choice. And the things that are supposed to be treats and sweets, the, the minority, the harder to find, the maybe more expensive, the more elusive, right? <laughs> so make them treats, actually. I don't know. We eat sugar in my house almost every day. I'm about Ridiculous. to send you a big box of sugar for Valentine's <laughs> Day. I was packing it up, but I'm like, I know Oni is now six years old. However, I know he's going to love this. And this is a lot of sugar and his poor teeth and mm -hmm. his, his little system. Like, I just hope she spreads it out amongst, you know, a oh, month yeah. or so. Oh, no, it's much longer than that. And we share it, too. And then I make goodies and give them away. He just had a dentist appointment last week and it's all good. No candies. Oh, thank yes. goodness, because that would be a direct <laughs> result of my candy boxes that I mail your son like regularly. Oh, I love it though. He is so excited and jumps up and down for the mail. And he just, yeah, it's a beautiful thing for a baby to have a pen pal, kind of like the way you are. Far away him. and like a, a weird candy fairy, fairy godmother. Mm, but he won't eat the big gummies. He won't eat the big shark and he won't eat the big snake. He just plays with them and he'll like take a little nibble out of them just to sample them. And then they're toys. Yeah. For those who don't know, I live in Las Vegas where it's candy shop madness. And there are specialty candies that are enormous. Like there's a five pound gummy bear that I want to send him, but I don't want to send five pounds in the mail because that's extreme. <laughs> it's extreme. Yeah but I know he would love it. 
Oh my goodness. He would love it. He loves all his gummy animals. He took the shark to the basketball game. And then awesome. And so I was walking around for most of the game with a shark in my purse because he doesn't eat it. He just hangs out. (laughs) He just hangs out with it. That's so cute. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I'll be sending another one. And then it's, it's moments like these and these types of things I do in my life that brings joy, you know, Mm, like, yes getting a box of candy ready for a super cool kid like brings me joy oh he's such a cool kid we have to think about I think uh for we can't let the the dialogue slip away but we also have to be mindful about the community that we create while we talk about it right is it a blaming shaming type of community or is it a calling in and healing kind of community and uh no matter who you are I I think peace is really like aren't we tired as a society or is it just me <laughs> oh. tired to fight I am too tired to fight I literally do not have the energy to fight in me I only have the energy to work on the things that I love and that's that's what I'm doing and preparing for this year I I made the decision probably about 10 years ago thinking about a resistance, you know, um, I made the decision that I only wanted to work for things that I, I invested energy in loving and, and creating and good things. And so all of our programs are, we create the visuals of some pretty horrible things. Those injustice maps can get pretty depressing. I also focus on the history that we're pulling up and the history that's coming to me now that I'm looking for it. I think an important part of our healing is that concentration in our thinking, because I'm constantly thinking about uh, the mountain and the rivers and their stories. And so those come to me a lot and, and it seems magical. And, and then I start saying things like, well, there's no coincidence, right? So in this work, in our culture humility work, it's, it's important to acknowledge these horrible things that are happening, keep tally, keep the dialogue going. But I also think it's important for us to pull up and highlight those beautiful moments of culture humility. I had one, like, you know, I don't know the whole story behind the Nike brand. I know that if I really dig deep enough, I don't, I I would probably disagree with the manufacturing and the labor (laughs) if it's just like a traditional normal company, but Nike is one of the only brands that I'm aware of that has a special line of just native designs, native clothing, and a lot of that money goes back into native communities. And so they buy uh, basketball shoes and jerseys and camps for kids and stuff like that. And I went to a Nike and seven game this past weekend to honor some Native American basketball players through the Nike and seven and Nike and seven chose the University of Montana Grizzlies in Portland game as the game to do it. I was really proud. It was really cool. And I was sitting there thinking about how impactful every place would be because then after the game, me and my friend Vina went into a store, like a little tea shop. And I said, they said, are you a rewards member? And I said, no. And they said, oh, okay. And they looked at us and said, well, we do tribal discounts. And I was like, oh my goodness. Yes. Like, (laughs) well, the girl made an assumption, right? She knew, she knows we're native, right? 
my favorite but, discount, right? But how amazing is that across the nation? If you're a business owner and you own a, a chain or a franchise, institute a policy where your employees and your frontline employees know that tribal IDs are federal IDs and they will be accepted. And on top of that, you'll do a discount because to heck with a performative land acknowledgement, we offer you a discount, right? Oh my goodness. That's like my favorite thing. <laughs> That's my favorite thing now. How about instead of a land acknowledgement, I give you my cash app and you just put some money in there. <laughs> people do do that. I've seen people do that. <laughs> yes. Um, and that way, you know, it's for sure helping the indigenous people like me. Right. Or how about when you do a land acknowledgement for a certain area, you look up native owned plus that tribal name of wherever you're at. So um, let's see. If you're first time coming to Glacier National Park and you're doing some sort of speaker series and it's a big fancy event and you do a land acknowledgement, look up a local native owned business that is in that town or the next town over and say, hey, I found this really amazing business. I'd like to acknowledge that we're on the land of the Blackfeet and the Blackfoot people. And I also found this business that has a mission that's right along the lines of us as a collective. And then just like mass donate beautiful love to that one small little native owned business, right? Oh, that'd be so beautiful. That that would be really beautiful. I love it. I love it. <laughs> yeah, right. What do they call that? They will call it donation bombing. Yeah. Don yeah. Love. It's like love bombing, but it's with money. It's like right. a land acknowledgement, but it's better because you're helping pull some native person somewhere out of poverty. And there are very few native millionaires. If there's a native millionaire listening to this podcast, I'd love to talk to you because I love to talk strategy and just dream about a bigger life that a lot of native people don't get access to, have never had oh. access to. You know, I know of one Native millionaire. I think you're wearing the robe right now. Oh, shoot. Oh, I'm going to. Oh, my goodness. Oh, yeah. The, just let me lose my brains real quick. Um, <laughs> Trixie. Yes. Trixie Mattel is Ojibwe from Wisconsin, the traditional Anishinaabe territory by the Great Lakes, who's a world-renowned drag queen who has taken her pain and struggles and transformed it into a multi-million business. And that's why I love her so much because it's so inspiring. Even though she's a good 10 years younger, I'm just like, wow, look at you do it. That is how you do it. Mm, wow. That is amazing. Isn't that inspiring? It's so inspiring. And because the only like wealthy Native people that I've known have had to work for oil companies and stuff like that. And so right. that's cool wealth, but like, it's not that's my problem it's not like Trixie Mattel well right. in like taking your dream and turning it into something beautiful that empower people and provide so much I I have no idea how many days that this robe has provided me comfort like almost all day long <laughs> I wear Trixie's makeup almost every day and I live in the robe as well I love mm -hmm. it I actually put the robe on while I'm putting on the makeup yeah. and I watch her all the time. I just love following what she's doing. I've, I find myself being inspired and being like, okay, 
if she can do it, then definitely I can do it. And I try to like see the strategy. And I love how she's like so humble about it. Like she doesn't go around boasting. It's just, mm. hey, this is what I do. This is what I love to do. And this is how I'm doing it. And this is what's the result. Just amazing. I want to hear that story. I want to hear how she started, how she turned to makeup and then how she turned to real estate. Right. And started getting into rental properties. Well, she kind of goes into, I saw, I don't think it's on the show, but I, I watched so many videos of her. It was about just having a financial security after her looks fade as a drag queen. Mm-hmm. And then the real estate hotels after she's, you know, a 50 plus iconic drag queen, she'll have all these properties that people will still be respecting and loving, hopefully at that time in the future and being like, oh my gosh, Trixie Motels. I'm, I'm, I'm a guest at Trixie Motel and she was this beautiful drag queen in the 2020s and blah, 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 right? Like you have to think ahead. And that's another strategy that I like am ins- inspired to see her is her planning for herself for the future mm-hmm. because she is the only one who can take care of herself when you mm-hmm. have to just rely on yourself and not the world because you're so other. I mean, let's talk about the drag queen hate that's going on right now. Like it's a lot, you know, like you really got to make your own path and like make your own future and secure it any way you can. But I resonate with the millionaires who are doing their own thing because I'm someone like I was talking about earlier in the radio thing. I could, I could have, and I probably still could if I really tried to work for some big corporate entertainment company, but I wouldn't be true to myself. And I know that I would betray myself along the way. And I'd have to compromise things that I don't want to compromise anymore because I've had a taste of what it's like to live authentically and make money. I cannot go back. Thanks for listening to the Indigenous Vision podcast. You can find us online on Instagram, Indigenous Vision Media. We're also on Facebook and Twitter. And of course, you can hit up our website, indigenousvision.org. We've got two cultural humility trainings coming up this year. One starts March 23rd and the other starts May 23rd. Register yourself and your entire team right now, indigenousvision.org slash cultural humility. I've shared those links and plenty of others in the show notes for this episode. Thank you so much again and have a wonderful day.